This presentation is from UX Australia 2020, day one. And with that out of the way, I'd like to introduce our first speaker for this year's conference, Tatiana Mack, who's joining us from Portland. A scene of some disruption over the last couple of months, and we won't dwell on that today, Tatiana, or at least I'll let you dwell on that to the extent that you wish. But thank you very much for joining us. And without any further ado, I'll hand over to you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you everyone for having me all the way from Portland. Um, I'm calling from the past, if you will. So it's Monday afternoon for me right now. Um, so we've uh, pre-recorded my talk as a result, but I'm really excited to chat with you after and kick off this amazing conference. So thank you again. Hedera Helix. You might know this plant more commonly as English ivy. English ivy grows all around the world. Uh, I believe they're in Australia as well. And it is something that uh, you commonly see around these majestic castles, particularly in Europe, where they love their majestic cathedral fanfare. But uh, English ivy grows super abundantly in these places. And during the autumn, it can be quite beautiful, um, as I've been grateful to travel there and seen it turn from its green to beautiful shades of red and orange. And um, it's quite a spectacle to see. English ivy has quite a long history of lore around it. Bacchus, who is depicted here, the Greek god of wine, or excuse me, the Roman god of wine, uh, Dionysus is his Greek counterpart. Anyway, finish nerding out. Uh, he was known to create wreaths of English ivy to wear around his head uh, in order to protect him from his debauchery. He was quite the drinker and uh, he would wear crowns of English ivy as he believes that it was a way to cure hangovers. Beyond uh, silly hangover cures, English ivy also had a lot of meaning behind scholarly purposes. So often you'll find poets and writers depicted with an ivy leaf around their heads. And it was believed that it was a way to protect their thoughts. English ivy also was believed to ward off evil spirits, which is why you see it so abundantly around castles and other uh, wealthy homes, is that it was believed to keep out negativity and evil. Um, and that's why it's so abundantly crawling up walls so frequently. It was thought of as a barrier English ivy uh, was brought to the United States, where I live, North America, and, and to Australia uh, by the way of colonization. You all might be familiar with Captain Cook, uh, who was a white settler who uh, was first known to make contact with the indigenous Aboriginal people in Australia. And through Captain Cook's conquest, uh, 500, over 500 indigenous groups, nearly a million people across 60,000 years of history were all erased through his acts of colonization. And with him, he brought smallpox, influenza, measles, all things that were also brought to the United States, common gifts of colonization, I would say. Um, and that 90% of people were eradicated within the first 10 years of contact. And so what I don't think Captain Cook realized um, 
along with the English colonizers who came to the United States, was that they, like the English ivy they brought, were an invasive species. Ivy is something that grows very abundantly when it has no natural predators, which English ivy has no natural predators in the United States or in Australia, so it grows quite abundantly. You can see here some of the damaging effects. It takes over trees. And honestly, the limit for the amount of growth English ivy can take does not exist. And another sad thing about English ivy is that it's propagated by way of beautiful birds who take uh, the berries from the English ivy and carry it great distances in order to get it to, um, to grow further. And in doing this, if the birds ever ingest the berries, uh, they can die. The berries are poisonous to a lot of beautiful species of birds, including um, these miners, which you may be familiar with. And not only that, but English ivy is very good at growing upon itself. So this is, it can create what's essentially a, a, a desert of English ivy. Um, and I would know this very well personally as I studied environmental science. One of the many field trips that we would go on was essentially manual labor and pulling up these ivy deserts. And what's magnificent, and you can kind of see depicted in this photo in the middle, is that uh, as the English ivy grows atop more plants, including its own ancestors, it uh, doesn't really need a lot to survive, that it can actually thrive uh, atop its dying ancestors, which is quite interesting. And as a child, um, you know, being who I am, my parents uh, really saw me as a third adult in our family and a third manual laborer. So it so one summer when I was uh, maybe 10 years old, 12 years old, and my mom told me to go out back um, in order and just to clear the ivy. It seemed like a simple enough chore. So I went out similarly to how this WikiHow article depicts. I took some shears, I cut away the English ivy, pulled it off the fence, thought I did my job, then continued about my 10, 12-year-old life going skating with my friends and um, living up in the summer. And uh, when I came back at the end of the summer, basically, my mom told me to go out there and look to see what had happened. Well, uh, the English ivy, um, as I tried to take it down, had actually all grown back. And uh, it was possibly even larger than it was before that. And so um, she was like, you got to finish the job. I told you how to do it this summer. So I went and I started pulling at the ivy just to realize, um, this is basically what I look like on my hands and knees, pushing these barrels of ivy, that um, they all encountered the foundation of our house and that in order to take out this ivy I would need to figure out how to pull it from under our house and it was that under the house was the real problem that I needed to solve. Hello, my name is Tatiana Mack, and I am uh, here presenting to you all the way from Portland, Oregon, in the west coast of the United States. So I'm technically in the past right now, uh, presenting to the future, and I'm here to talk to you about systems of systems.
So when we think about systems in the context of UX and design, I think we often think about design systems. And design systems are something that have been around forever, but I think that they've had quite a big resurgence as we've started to see the technology and the tech stacks uh, basically uh, become to the same level as some of the design thinking um, and, and align itself with our methodology. And Essentially, we can think of design systems in the way that Brad Frost has shown with, to us in his book, Atomic Design, um, where we have something like a drop-down feeding into a form pattern, which then might feed into something like a user flow, like a product registration. And in his atomic design, we might see the drop-down as an atom, the form pattern as a molecule, and the product registration as an organism. If we take that a step further, we take the organism, that might fit into what I might call a being. So those are our products. And then we might take that a step further and see that those products are what help to create the ecosystem around us, which I would say is our industry. But we don't just exist in a vacuum in our industry, though sometimes we act like it. What we create in our industry gets fed back into the world or society. And so this is the way in which atoms build into molecules, into organisms, which create beings that live in an ecosystem in our world. And this is how we effectively build at scale. We love that phrase. I'm going to break down this story into a three-act play. The first act, we're going to talk about wealth. So mortgages, I imagine many of you um, may have a mortgage yourself, and I'm not sure how many of you know about the history of this phrase, but mortgage comes from French. Uh, if we break it down, it goes to mortis is the first word, and gage. Mortis means death, and gage means pledge. So if we put it together, a mortgage is a death pledge. And I imagine that you who have mortgage, mortgages might feel that way as you're paying down, gosh, I don't know, for 30 years, um, you'll be stuck in this. Uh, so uh, I always think that that's fun to look at the etymology of words. And I think when we think of mortgages, we think of homes right, that you get a mortgage in order to fund your home. But they actually have a much darker past. Mortgages were initially created in order to buy, sell, and trade enslaved people. And this is, in many ways, an Amerocentric presentation because I am American. We are the center of our own created universes. So for that, I apologize. But I do believe that the context of everything I'm about to say um, holds a strong weight in Australia, which is also a colonist state. And I don't know enough about your history in order to speak to it to this degree. Um, but from what I do know, there are a lot of parallels. So thank you for bearing with this analogy. So we think about slavery. I think we often think about the way in which slavery was manifested in the American South. And we often ignore in conversations I've heard and read, the slavery of the North. And I think part of that is that we have this misconception that the Civil War was a fight about slavery, that the North didn't want 
slavery and the South did. And it's really a false conflation of what the issues were at hand. That's actually a really harmful, uh, false thing that we remember. What it was actually about was this concept of state sovereignty versus federal authority. And slavery was one of the many issues that fit into this binary. Who had the right to dictate whether or not we could enslave people? And so I'll tell you a little bit about the slavery of the North in the United States. In the United States, the slavery of the North, we're thinking like in New York, what would happen is that uh, those folks, because there weren't plantations, um, cotton plantations as there were in the South, enslaved people were treated a little bit differently. They uh, were often sent to do administrative tasks. So often they were, uh, they were literate and they were able to negotiate. They were given a bit more autonomy. And I don't want to oversell the things that they were given because at the end of the day, they were still enslaved people and held against their will and kidnapped. Uh, but they were able to move a bit more freely than the enslaved people in the South. And as a result, they often acted a bit like freelancers and they would actually go out and find their own work and they would hang out um, in, in common areas where they know work, uh, work to be, which is something that is commonly happens with a lot of migrant workers um, today in the United States. And the rich white people started complaining and they started saying that they experienced some racial anxiety. And uh, reading this phrase gave me a visceral reaction because that's very much a phrase that you would hear somebody saying today in 2020. And so what happened um, was that all uh, the enslaved people would hang out what was called here in, in this passage, all Negro and Indian slaves that are let out to hire would be hired at the market house at the Wall Street slip. So you may be familiar with Wall Street. Um, that is where many folks hung out. That was in 1711 when that was the case uh, where Wall Street was created. Uh, this uh, Wall Street was actually created in order to control um, and to buy, sell, and trade enslaved people, that they didn't like that enslaved people had autonomy to find their own work. They wanted to control that for them. So they created Wall Street in order to do that. And at one point, Wall Street and the trading of enslaved people accumulated seven times the combined wealth of banks and railroads. And you'll have to do a little bit of imagining here because railroads at that point were very lucrative. And so uh, this is an extraordinary amount of amassed wealth. And the thing with this wealth is that there wasn't any sort of record keeping around it. It was completely separated from the banks because you'll notice I compared it to seven times the, the combined wealth of banks and railroads. Well, it, it had no... Uh, his, it had no <laughs> accounting ledgers. And so it was essentially undocumented wealth. Um, and I don't know uh, how it is in Australia, but I will tell you that in the United States, we certainly don't like when things or people are undocumented. So going back to 1711 at Wall Street um, and looking at today, what Wall Street still stands. I believe there's a tiny placard that acknowledges the fact that Wall Street was essentially founded on the enslavement of people and that the practices that were created at Wall Street are the same ones that we manifest today.
And the history behind it is so often ignored to the point where some of the most major companies that we're all complicit to, like Aetna, an insurance company here in the United States, only apologized for its slave insurance in 2000. That's barely 20 years ago. So hundreds of years of not acknowledging the fact that it sold policies that reimbursed slave owners for financial losses when those they enslaved died. Literally, insurance was to have insurance on enslaved people. And so when we look at the people who created these infrastructures from our American history, and we look to the modern people who perpetuate it today, not much has changed. The average CEO salary, according to Forbes, is 14.5 million US dollars for a Fortune Top 100. And the average CEO makes 287 times what an average worker does. And think about that concept. That's isolated often to business and tech where worker salaries are disproportionately higher. Imagine what it might be for factory workers, um, for even within an Amazon example, looking at Jeff Bezos to someone who is a software engineer to someone who is an Amazon driver or factory worker. That number is going to be much higher for them. So act two, let's talk about productivity. I think we live in a productivity-obsessed culture. We're always trying to maximize our amount of time, and you'll hear that time is money. And this is somewhat of an unhealthy obsession, I think. And we can thank somebody named Thomas Affleck for a lot of our uh, concepts around how productive we should be. Thomas Affleck, uh, who, let's take an aside, looks quite a bit like Ben Affleck. Um, and don't want to forget Casey, he always makes him feel bad. His younger brother, they also look quite a bit alike. Um, so maybe there's a connection. He wrote the bestseller Cotton Plantation Record and Accounting Book. And essentially what this book did was it created a systematic way in which to track the work of enslaved people on the plantations. And throughout it, it was basically a glorified ledger. You had time tracking, task tracking, you had direct reports. Um, they created a system of middle management where uh, certain enslaved people um, had slightly more rights than others. Um, and a lot of these infrastructures might be familiar to us. Uh, often when uh, workers would uh, revolt uh, or organize, they would uh, shuffle them around to uh, make it more challenging to uh, unionize and to organize themselves. They would time their meals uh, to make it more difficult for them to organize. They would, um, regulate or not allow breastfeeding. These are all things that when you step back for just one moment, you realize that not only are these things, things that we um, experience in modern work culture today that are very normalized, they're written as parts of company handbooks. They all come from this dark history of the enslavement of people. And that also we perpetuate a lot of these, like that idea of timed meals, not allowing people to organize. Those are ways in which uh, people who are incarcerated are treated within the prison industrial complex, which I know Australia also has a problem with. 
And so with this record book that Thomas Affleck, the great grand <laughs> of Ben Affleck maybe, wrote, uh, he realized that to better sell this book, that using it as a cotton plantation record and account book didn't work for the ways in which the North enslaved folks. So he rebranded it like we do, you know, uh, we love a good rebrand. Uh, he rebranded it to the farmer's record and account book, which widened its breadth a bit and made it a bit more, um, a bit less specific to the South. And so this was um, widely adopted and people used it in order to um, incentivize more work that often in enslaved, uh, they would have a competitions for enslaved people. So uh, the person who picked the most cotton in an hour uh, would get a, a slight bonus of sorts. Maybe they would be fed a little bit more. And then that would be the new standard. They would uh, change things um, and they would name one person basically as, as the best person for that month. And these are concepts that you start to see be adapted and rebranded much in the same way Thomas Affleck rebranded his book to being more palatable. Uh, when every year they would use this record book to identify how much, how, how much they had in yields and then they would use the next year to force them to do more work. That's not so dissimilar to when your boss tells you that we need to exceed our year over year by 20%. And I'm not using this as a comparison to compare our lush tech and design jobs to the enslavement people. That's absolutely not um, the case. That, that there is no comparison there, but that we must see the origins of where these oppressive systems come from. And speaking of uh, parental leave, I should say, but Public Citizen posted uh, the number of uh, weeks of parental leave around the world, and you can see that for many of them, the highest one being 59 to 43, and it trickles all the way down past all these countries. Um, all the way down to the bottom with an ellipsis. And you know when there's an ellipse, like that's a bad sign. The United States where I live has a big fat zero. So uh, yeah, that's great on us. You're doing slightly better in Australia. It looks like you have 18 weeks of mandatory parental leave. So good on you, a slightly better settler colonist state than I have. Um, we start to see that these tools of exploitation stemming all the way back from slavery, which I hope we all agree was a horrible thing, um, they still exist, that these tools of oppression, they still exist. The tools of oppression never went away. That the plantation record account book by Thomas Affleck that taught people how to uh, basically further exploit the enslavement of people is not so dissimilar to some of the self-help and productivity books that we have today. The actors have not changed so much and their goals haven't either that really this is about the perpetuation of making the richest people richer. So how does this impact our industry really? So I have a little story to tell you when I was working on a design um, for a contact management system, I was trying to aggregate a grid of bases you want to do. And we were building the app in React Native. So I was building these design comps in Fra uh, Framer X. And there's a plugin that helps you get uh, images. And one of them is uh, 
called Tiny Faces. And essentially what it does is it aggregates images from Facebook. And when I had aggregated a sea of faces, I realized that they were all men and masculine presenting people looking back at me. And that was quite the shock. I mean, I know that we're bad about that kind of stuff in the industry, but I was like, it's gotta be a way to toggle this so that there's a bit more um, visual diversity here. And so uh, I, I dug into some of the uh, settings and I realized what's being depicted here on the screen is that when I toggled one of these faces to true, it showed me a male or masculine presenting face. And then when I toggled it to false, it showed me a uh, woman or, or uh, femme presenting face. And that to me, said that male is truth and female is false and more importantly non-binary is non-existent and when i dug into this plugin a bit more what i learned is that it's connected to the facebook graph api which dictates in it that gender is selected by this person string male or string female the gender is set to a custom value this value will be based off of the preferred pronoun it will be omitted if the preferred pronoun is neutral hmm. to unpack this api documentation essentially what this is saying is that male maps to male female maps to female, but that uh, non-binary, which Facebook does have a large array of choices for the pronoun settings beyond male and female, um, is that it depends. Uh, so because there are so many custom pronoun choices, uh, there's no clear mapping. So how did they handle this? Well, they said, if you map he to him, we're gonna assume you're male. If you map she to her, we're going to assume you're female. And then if you map to they, them, or Zizer, or any of the neo pronouns, those newer pronouns that um, tend to be non-binary and gender non-conforming, they'll map you to null. And the issue with this is, is beyond just the, the missing piece there, is that there's a severe misunderstanding of gender and pronouns that someone can have multiple genders or multiple pronouns and not have the pronouns associate anything with their genders. So for I example, I use she and they, and I'm non-binary. It doesn't tell you anything. Um, and so to use this as an explicit delineator is, is a technical problem. And so when I posted about this on Twitter, I got some responses. So one Chad said, this is a bug, just report it. I'm sure they'll be thankful as it's missed their QA. Another Chad said that given they've used true false for type, just seems like lazy dev work more than anything. And what I would love to tell these Chads and anyone that thinks this is that intent does not erase impact. And specifically, designer intent does not erase user impact. So it doesn't matter if the creator had malintent or good intent, the impact does not change. The impact is when you're looking at this, we're being forced to, to see gender as a binary and that people are being omitted from this. So I have a talk where I dive into this a bit more called Building Socially Inclusive Design Systems, where I impact this and many other examples that I gave at Joint Futures last year. So you can click through and see that talk as well. When we go back to this system where we have being feeding into our ecosystems, feeding into our world, which is society, when we look at examples like 
this one from the Facebook Graph API, I think we need to remember how it all ties together. We have an exclusionary ecosystem that's sustaining some of these bad practices, that defines some of these systemic issues. That feeds into the exclusionary atoms that we create within our design systems. We introduce these bad patterns that are driven by the ways in which we're informed in society. And we create a positive feedback loop that our ignorance on one end will feed our ignorance on the other. And furthermore, it will provide data and justification for the perpetuation of that ignorance and that harm. And so we have to look at impact. What is the impact of something so microscopic, so atomic, like a drop-down menu? Well, Dana Parker, Nulisa Luciano Ruiz, Yampi Mendez Orocho, Monica Diamond, Lexi, Johanna Metzger, Serena Angelique Velasquez Ramos, Leila Palea Sanchez, Penelope Diaz Ramirez, Mina Pop, Hella J. O'Regan, Tony McDade, Dominique Remy Fells, Brian Milton, Jane Thompson, Zelina Reyes Hernandez, Brian Egypt Powers, Brayla Stone, Mercy Mack, Shaki Peters, Bree Black, Summer Taylor, Marilyn Caceres, Dia Dior H. Ova, Kiyasha D. Hardy, Asia Raquel Roan Spears might have something to say about it if they weren't murdered. These are all people that are transgendered people that have been murdered in 2020 alone. That's 26 people in the United States who have been knowingly murdered. It's probably more transgender deaths get underreported. They often get misgendered in the reporting. So this number is likely very much higher. We're in August and it's been 26. Last year, we ended the year with 25 known deaths in the United States and 26 in the year before. And I don't know if in Australia, this is tracked in the same way. I'd encourage you to look into if it is, um, but this number is not getting lower. Things are not changing. And the fact that it's only August and it's already 26 makes me extremely sad. And I think what it says to me is that we have to look at the fact of these intersections that 91% of the transgender folks who were murdered last year were black women. And I think it says something about society, that our society hates transgender and non-binary people, particularly in the United States when they're Black, and I imagine particularly in Australia when they're Aboriginal. And you might be feeling a way about me saying that. You might say, I don't hate transgender and non-binary people of color. Well, what have we done to stop it? What, how have we broken the systems to, to stop our society? Because what our society is showing right now is that is the case, that we do in fact hate them because we allow these deaths to continue. So I go back to the story about English IV. English IV and tracing the English IV from the atoms, from the leaves to the molecules, to the organisms, to the being and the ecosystem of the world, we were looking at it from small to big. It's what allows us to build at scale. And what I think tech allows us to do is to build hate at scale. Because tech is not a vertical. When we think about tech, it's not another industry. I mean, it is, but it's not just another industry. Tech is a horizontal. 
tech touches every other single industry, including itself. It touches entertainment, fashion, the automotive industry, the hospitality industry, pharmaceutical industry, sports. Uh, it goes well beyond this list. We exacerbate, we help to grow every single other infrastructure that we touch. Tech is a multiplier. And so when we put it all together, tech multiplies building hate at scale. So where do we go from here? I presented to you the three acts in which we looked at the ways in which this manifests itself. We have to dig a bit deeper. Another species I'd like to tell you about is Sequoia semperverans. And right now, I just wanna take a moment to acknowledge the horrific fires happening where these beautiful redwoods live um, and that California is uh, on fire, and this is due to massive amounts of the global crisis. Um, so I just hope for everyone's safety um, and hope that these fires stop soon. So these red are redwoods, Sequoia sempervirens is the redwoods family. And they're such a beautiful and magnificent species. If you ever get the chance, forever allowed to leave our homes and our countries ever again, maybe for now, take a look at pictures on the internet. You can really see how majestic they are. They grow up to being 34 feet wide, um, up to 87 meters tall, and they can be up to 2,700 years old. So far beyond so many of our modern civilizations, and yet we're seeing their destruction because of our own doing. But despite how majestic they are, uh, there is a species that can actually hurt it tremendously. Hetera helix, or the English ivy, it can grow and actually just take over the uh, redwoods uh, quite majorly. It can take over these trees. Um, and what it does is actually interesting because it's, from a scientific standpoint, not parasitic. It's actually, um, it just uh, takes away all of the oxygen and all of the nutrients around it. It doesn't actually suck anything from the tree. It just prevents the tree from getting what it needs. And the impact can be quite severe. So what we have on the screen is cross sections of uh, the redwoods and the uh, English ivy has grown so densely around it that it's nearly a quarter of the diameter of the tree. And English ivy grows much more rapidly than the redwoods. You can see how densely packed some of these uh, rings are in the redwoods. English ivy, not so much takes matters of weeks and months to grow to that degree. And so when I told you that story of me trying to, as a 10 year old, small, even smaller than I am now, trying to unearth this English ivy, I told you that the problem I needed to solve was under the house. And that too is the case here, that we need to chase the ivy. We need to trace back from our atoms to our molecules to our, um, all the way through our organisms in order to see where our roots lay. We need to chase the green in a capitalist society, which we all operate under to some degree, global capitalization is real, that we need to chase the money. We need to see where money comes from. And it's 
when we chase the money, we realize that so much of what's hiding under the roots of this house is actually the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. It is the infrastructure that has driven every single system that I've told you about today. It is about the proliferation and success of one master race and for every other race to be subservient to that. That is the effects that we're seeing today. So we have to lift this house. And we have to pull it by the roots. We have to extract. And we have to, we have to kill it before it kills us. That's exactly what it's doing right now. We must cut off the sunlight to the vitriolic vines of hate. So I invite you to be more like redwoods. You have to learn from our fallen ancestors. And one of our, not our ancestors, but uh, one of the American history ancestors, uh, James Baldwin wrote that nothing can be changed until it is faced. And that we have to look at racism and stabilism and sexism and anti-queerness and anti-trans in our past and in our present. It's not something that has gone away. We have to look particularly living in settler colonist states, slavery and colonization and the impacts that they have not only on our past, but on our present. Because the things that we can't get past are also the things that we cannot seem to remember, that we aren't taught these things in history. Everything that I told you about today was glossed over in history and blatantly ignored and I was lied to, as I imagine many of you were in schooling as well. In the United States, we have the New York Times, which created the 1619 Project, which sought to be an invitation to reframe how our country discusses the role and history of its black citizens. I know some of those countries are happening in Australia as well with the indigenous folks and, and hearing stories um, from them and, and reframing the story of Captain Cook and, and how a lot of what uh, is told through your history books about Captain Cook was actually wrong, including the translations of what the uh, indigenous people first said. And when we think about all of this, I think that we often feel shame and guilt, and those are not helpful places to stay. And so I invite us all that our privilege is not our fault, but it is our responsibility. We have a responsibility to protest when systems aren't working. That's what's happening in the United States today with Black Lives Matter movement. We're in the 60-some day of, of uh, continual protest. This is my home city on the screen uh, with massive protests across our bridges. I know that in Australia, a lot of protests are happening in solidarity with indigenous folks who, who are also impacted by some of the same settler colonist states also being brutally murdered by your police. And the invitation, I think, is that we have to remember that we're all harmed by these systems, that our privilege shields us from many of the harms but that they also ultimately harm us. I showed you a few of the ways in which corporatism harms you still um, with things like maternity leave. And so we looked to Angela Davis who told us if they come for me in the morning, they will come for you in the night. That all of these ill effects will have an impact on everyone. And that shouldn't be the only reason we do it, but we need to protect our most vulnerable in the process of doing this. We need to center the most vulnerable people in our research and in our designs and in our thinking and as part of the process. Because fascism, which is the global movement we're fighting against right now, while some of us are, is that they target the most vulnerable people on purpose. That they say those people are unworthy of life 
And they, that's the definition, that that unworthiness of life was from a placard I read in Berlin after the Holocaust. This isn't a new concept because hate is formulaic. The infrastructures and, and the world leaders, including the president of my own country, is using the same formulas of hate that we've seen since the beginning of time. But what tech has done and what the industrial revolution has done is we found a way to automate and to algorithmize it. So on the note of Redwood, something that I didn't tell you about them is that they have very shallow roots that they um, can honestly be toppled over by a very big gust of wind. And because they're so massively tall, uh, it's, it's easy for them to get swept up um, and their root systems being shallow, that's not a strong basis. So what do they do? Well, they join roots. So I invite you to stand tall and to join roots in this global movement. And again, as Angela Davis reminds us that we must learn to lift as we climb, I borrow her words and I say we must learn to join as we grow. Thank you. Thank you, Tatiana. That was wonderful. There was um, a lot in there. Hello. You've been joined by a guest. How lovely. <laughs> this is my guest presenter. <laughs> That's great. There's, there's a lot in there um, for us to unpack um, and potentially get into. I know we've got um, a Q&A panel ready um so if people do have questions please post them in there and we'll we'll read them out and deal with them um i have one though which is around like you, you were talking at the end there about um joining together um i have a question like there's been um a, a fair amount of discussion around the idea of uh unionizing in tech what are your what are your thoughts on that one yeah, I think that in general unionization is a great idea. And I think especially when we look back at the connection to where all of the workers' rights movements, you know, going back to um, when slavery existed and enslaved people were trying to unionize, that's where the concept of race was started. Um, I don't, we don't talk about that a lot, but the only reason that there was a divide between uh, people who were white, um, workers, I mean, obviously they had a much different situation because they weren't kidnapped as the African enslaved people were, but uh, the construct of race was created to divide them in order to prevent them from unionizing. And in the modern world, we certainly still see the ill effects of anti-blackness and racism, but in tech, you see a lot of union busting. I mean, I know Google um, has anti-union lawyers specifically on to prevent us from having any sort of worker power and this is something that i speak out about a lot like the concept of not sharing your salary or um the concept of having to sign um non-disparagement agreements when you quit a job these are all ways in which to prevent us from collectively having workers rights so i think the more we can work at whatever scales we can to do that i think it's absolutely critical to preventing from tech from being the absolute massive algorithmic power um, and multiplier for hate that it already is. 
We've got a question from Ruby, which I'll read out for you. As designers, we often find ourselves in the position of using tools that are complicit in the harm of minority communities in the world. Do you have any advice on reducing our reliance on these tools or in developing more ethical alternatives? Yeah, this is a great question and something that I'm struggling with. So I uh, am the a uh, maintainer of an open source project called Self-Defined, which is a diction an open source dictionary that I'm hoping to create to um, essentially challenge some of the ways in which we define words, um, especially because a lot of definitions don't evolve quickly enough for things like gender identity, racial identity, et cetera. And uh, right now we're working on integrating like an API so that it can plug into other apps. And unfortunately, a lot of those APIs are backed by things like Amazon, and, um, you know, even GitHub, like I just saw earlier today that Nat Friedman, who's the CEO of GitHub, is now blocking people that are speaking out against their contract with ICE. And so I think that the answer isn't so linear and it isn't so binary uh, to just say quit all of those things. I think when we can, absolutely, that's what we should do. But unfortunately, um, there's not an easy way out. So for me, it's just uh setting what are my boundaries as myself as an individual and then making sure that those conversations are happening particularly when there's easy alternatives um i think that often we go to this extreme where we're like oh well we can't break up with this super integrated system but then it's like well let's re-pivot and focus on what we can do so i think as designers and individual contributors who don't have systemic power within your agencies and within your corporations it's about raising those questions um and collective like collecting your voices that's where the unionization part comes in if you can say hey i would love if we got an alternative to um github here's the research that we've done and this is how many people have signed it that starts to give you some sort of uh institutionalized voice and power so not a perfect answer uh but i think it's just about continuing to push and not using the excuse of oh well it's too hard to do this one thing yeah um joe has a follow-on question um which is when those of us who want to grow to, uh together bind our roots together how do we manage against the forces of privilege and supremacy who bind their roots together too? How does the union movement fight big tech money? Um, I mean, I think it's a classic uh, David and Goliath situation, right? That I think it's kind of funny because if you look at all of our folklore and all of our um, comic book narratives good always wins but good is so often smaller than evil and i think that the way in which we can fight big tech money is to extract as much money as we can and that's what i mean by like chasing the green is taking a look at our own personal finances how like i ask my friends all the time how many of you who have the ability to break up with amazon prime have done it how many of you are willing to quit uh, spotify because they continue to platform joe rogan and and uh, platforming hate like it comes down to a lot of individual purchasing decisions and i think it can feel very easy to be defeatist and say that that isn't enough but i think that's one avenue and then i think the other avenue is just like yeah, it goes back to unionization and getting more people to do it because collectively we do have a lot of wealth, I think, and a lot of power. Um, 
but everything around us is there to convince us that we don't. And that's only to benefit the perpetuation of that power differential. I think one of the things to keep in mind, Joe and, and others, um, just to uh, add to that a little bit, is that we, we have a system in place that is actively reinforcing the power of big tech and large companies. So one of the things that we need to do is to address that system as well. So we can address them with our purchasing choices. We can address them with the lack of advocacy for their products and for their services. We can start to remove their customer base by um, what we're doing. We can choose not to advertise with them. We can do those sorts of things. But we're also backed up by an economic system and a system of taxation, um, the free flow of capital into tax havens overseas, which allow those organisations to extract value from society, to extract wealth, to concentrate it and to keep it and to feed it back into changing laws, changing regulations to further benefit themselves. So we, we need to do both of those things. And as individuals, we have some power to make our purchasing choices. Collectively, we have the opportunity to uh, force those companies to put in place better protection for their workers, better benefits for people right throughout the system. We can have um, all of those things. We also need to do the part that changes the political systems, the regulatory systems, the taxation systems, so that those reinforcing structures are no longer there. That comes down to voting. Now in America, that's an option, um, and it's an option that only two thirds of the population choose to exercise at best. In Australia, it is a, um, a, a mandatory thing, and we need to be clear about what it is we're voting for, um, to vote in favour of that collective interest, um, to vote against those reinforcing institutions and those systems. Um, Winnie has asked a question, where can we find the list of those big bad companies? I mean, I think that it's more a question of which ones aren't <laughs> bad companies. Okay. Every single corporation, I mean, I think we have to step back and think like any corporation that has a CEO that has been able to be a multi-billionaire is complicit in those systems in some way, shape or form. And it just, it takes a, a simple, uh, I shouldn't say simple, but it takes a search to find out uh, how complicit that these companies are and i know it's a a small principle but that idea of returning things to a more grassroots level and decoupling ourselves from these mega conglomerates is one way to to impact that i mean i wish that i could excuse any of the major like fang tech companies or um anything on the fortune 100 they're all horrible for one reason or another and i think like if i can share i know that a lot of the times when i give this talk or talks in general people come away maybe excited or scared or uncomfortable with their privilege or overwhelmed with what to do is a common emotion and i think that just reminding yourself that you you cannot and will not fight every single battle that you need to find the battles that have that resonate with you and that you have privilege in um the the way that we dismantle this requires people with systemic privilege to speak out and to make some of these purchasing decisions right like at your company if you're purchasing uh facebook ads and you're trying to rally against that there's like probably a few people that hold the power of that decision in their hands those are the people and some of them i imagine are here at this conference today 
you are the ones that have the power of the decision and, and to, and to make it happen. So um, yeah, that's a bit of a derail from the question, um, but it, basically every company is, is horrible because it's complicit in, in capitalism. Some are slightly more horrible than others. Yeah. And this is why we need to uh, do both of those, like do both of those things. So we can address the companies themselves, but we also have to think about the system in which they operate um, and, and look at addressing some of those systems. Uh, Matt has a question and then Pervy has a question uh, and I think that will bring us to time with those two. So I'll start with Matt's first. Um, extending the roots analogy, what's our mycorrhizal fungal network to sustain nutrients for the roots to bind stronger and reach further? I think hyper-localized community um, and that starts with uh, looking within our like several meter radius within our neighborhoods and seeing what work is happening there. What systems of injustice are you perpetuating? What proprietors are you um, evangelizing or, or are you patronizing? I, I know that this is a little bit um, eclectic, but I literally go in the United States, we have a place where you can see who has made uh, donations to political parties and affiliates. And I look up every single person that I'm about to support um, in any substantial way uh, on that list. And if I've seen that they've donated to a party that evangelizes hate, then I will not put my dollars there. Um, so I think it's about like supporting hyper-localized communities, supporting businesses uh, run by uh, Black, Indigenous, and uh, Black, Indigenous people of color and people of color. Um, yeah, like just finding the places that resonate with you, supporting them and, and crafting those communities and uh, instead of feeding our energy into big corporations, because that's what most of us do with a lot of our time and, and resources. Pervy has a question, which is how do we make this fight and choice based on what the company stands for more transparent and more compelling than the default position of choosing due to comfort and convenience? I have to read it one more time myself. Thank you. Yeah, I think that this is a really, I hope that I'm answering your question in the way that um, you're asking it, but something that I think is a really powerful tool as an individual contributor who's working at a mid or large size company is that they write these grandiose statements about their mission and their, their ethos and their diversity and inclusion statements. But very rarely do those materialize into any actionable policy. And I think that as individual contributors inviting that question, okay, so one of our, um, our uh, missions is to um, provide like a safe space or uh, to be uh, extremely honest. I've, I've read the gamut of them. And so taking that mission and turning it back and saying, how are we being honest to our users when we create inaccessible platforms or when we support corporations that um, have a lot of secret fund funding channeling to hate groups? like. I think using the things that they tell us that we're supposed to evangelize and spinning it back as a question to them and holding them accountable to it. Okay, last one um, from Tamara. Where do you find your courage to unearth these deeply ingrained systems and give voice to it? I think that it's um, in looking at the intersection of the areas in which I experience oppression and the intersection of 
the areas where I experience immense privilege. And I think living in that duality allows me to see, oh, <laughs> here are my ignorances along my axes of privilege. Here's this tremendous power, unearned power that I've gained as a result of those privileges. So I lean into, into those aspects of my character to give these talks. And honestly, I think once you've received as many death threats as I have, like it starts to just not be <laughs> <laughs> scary like all right like um and then i take a med self-protection to protect things like my address and my personal information um to not get doxxed um but i i think it's just in realizing how much power my own voice has and and hoping to to see other folks who can hear me who maybe share some of that same axes that i do and and hoping that they'll share their stories it is insane to me that you receive death threats for the work that you're doing. I might invite you to use um, beguiling or scary or threatening over insane, uh, which carries a, an ableist connotation. But oh. uh, yeah, it's very, uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> it's surreal for sure. Um, but it's it's the work. So I I have a lot of privilege to protect me from it. So we we appreciate the work and thank you for appearing with us today, Tatiana. That's been wonderful.